HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. Follow me on Instagram at feast.yr.ears. This is episode number 22 of Feast Your Ears. This episode was pre-recorded February 19th, and joining me by phone today from South Carolina is Chef Frank Lee. Lee's been behind the stove for nearly 40 years. Um, he has been a proponent of locally sourced uh, food for pretty much all of that time, and I, you know, I, I think I wouldn't be out of line saying that uh, he probably helped create a whole movement. Um, he was doing things that we now, I think, in the food world think of as commonplace, like making sauerkraut and making miso and you know, addressing ailments with what you eat um, long before it was cool. So thanks, Frank, for joining me by phone today. Hi, Harry. Uh, I wish I was down there in South Carolina to enjoy some of your cooking. We've never actually met in person, but I hope that after this interview we'll be able to sometime. Well, I look forward to seeing you down here for our Food and Wine Festival. Yeah, that's coming up uh, March 2nd to 6th. Is that right? That's correct. And if it's uh, if we're lucky, we'll have a day like we're having today where it's almost 70 degrees and blue sky, and we're just uh, blessed to be down here. We love it. Nice, nice. Yeah, uh, I, I don't think I can make it down this time, but hopefully, uh, hopefully in the future. Um, can you uh, can you tell me a little bit about yourself when you meet someone for the first time? Uh, you know, I obviously I, I knew who you were. I did some research before this interview, but when you meet someone for the first time and they say, "Oh, yeah, what do you do, Frank? What do you say?" Well, what I'm doing is trying to uh, earn a living and support my family by cooking and uh, and teaching others and. More and more these days, I've become a mentor and a coach to uh, the many restaurants in our group, which is the whole management group. We have six restaurants in our group. So I'm, uh, my job more these days is to be uh, a mentor and a coach. And it's, uh, it's a lot of fun, but it's, uh, it's a different job than uh, working behind the stove, which is uh, it's, uh, instant gratification when you're cooking. When you're a coach, it's, uh, it's a slightly different story. 
Absolutely. It's, it's really, it's more of the long lead, right? I, I, uh, I definitely agree with you. One of the things that I, that I made note of was in an interview um, where someone asked you a similar question. You said, what we're really teaching people is how to work and then how to treat people. And I think that that, you know, I find the same thing in, in leading my business that, you know, as much as I'm making the daily decisions about, you know, getting refrigerators fixed and ordering, you know, what meat we should order and things like that, there's a, a great deal now. Um, and I'm sure you're leading a much larger team than I am, but I've got almost 40 people. And it really, there is a lot of teaching people how to, how to treat people and how to treat other people and how to have work ethic. Well, one of my mentors told me that what you get paid for is to have good judgment. And good judgment is based on the ability to make good decisions based on that judgment. And part of that process is trying to develop uh, human beings who uh, can make good judgment. And that comes from, uh, you know, learning how to be kind, learning how to listen, learning how to uh, taste things. If, uh, one of the things I tell my chefs, if you only learn one thing from me, is to taste everything in your station, everything in your kitchen, every day. And that's how you develop a palate. You know, you really have to take the time and dig into what you're doing. But developing the human beings is the, uh, is the real goal, and, and cooking is the, is the process by which we do it. I mean, we could be uh, shrimping or building airplanes, but we happen to be chefs in the kitchen. But the dynamics remain the same. You need to be able to motivate people and teach them how to be wonderful, great, intelligent human beings. I think that's a that's a it's a great sentiment, and it's something that I think people should should be more aware of and should remember more that 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 is really what being in charge or leading a group of people is about. Uh, it's not just about the about the bottom line at the end of the day. So I understand that your your start in in the kitchen came uh, at a at what I would consider a relatively young age. At seventeen, um, you started a, a place called Two Twenty One Pickens. Can you tell tell me a little bit about that? Well, this was uh, what we thought was going to be a lark with uh, myself and three other friends. We uh, were involved in uh, uh, yoga and vegetarianism, and we are wanting to do something uh, kind of uh, against the grain. And so let's open a vegetarian restaurant. Oh, yeah, we'll do that for a summer and then go back to college. And one thing led to another, and before you know it, we were a natural foods co-op and we're sourcing locally and had uh, uh, involved in the organic foods movement, which was just getting going at the time. And we started, uh, you know, fermenting food and uh, making yogurt and kefir and baking our own breads and we had a farmer's market just down the street from us, our state farmer's market, so we got involved in purchasing local and getting to know the rhythm of the seasons. But the, the whole foods movement with the whole grains and the organic uh, grains coming out of uh, Texas at that time was uh, very exciting. And, uh, and yet uh, uh, our theme was, you know, diet for health. And at the time, in the early 70s, that was... Uh, that was very controversial, and uh, we got a lot of shit for it. But it's uh, uh, it's all come back around. Everything old is new again. <laughs> it certainly is. I mean, that's you know we uh, we like to say that we started the Brooklyn Kitchen because we started pickling. I mean that that was you know, and that's that's you know. B- 
there there is a great deal of truth um, in that statement. I mean, we we needed supplies for pickling and couldn't find it anywhere uh, in in the New York area. I'm interested. In, you know, I, I want to remind anyone who's listening to this, um, you know, now in 2016 or in the future, that we're talking about a time when there wasn't an internet. You couldn't just pull your phone out of your pocket and say, oh, I want to know how to make miso and just look that up. I mean, we're living in a time now where that's, that information is so easily shared. Who were your mentors at the time when you decided, for instance, that you wanted to make miso for the first time? How'd you find out about it? Well, we uh, had to read a lot of books. You know, you had to, uh, there were some, uh, several good, uh, great books out there on vegetarianism and uh, you just had to study and pick up on it. One of the interesting things about it was so much of the vegetarian uh, cuisine was from other cultures. So we got to read uh, books and become familiar with Japanese cuisine and Latino cuisine and Indian cuisines. Uh, There was a a great learning curve because literally we didn't know how to boil water when we started. We were, you know, neophytes and, and, uh, you know, propelled along by our... uh, enthusiasm and not by our knowledge sure so and, I, I uh, imagine we're lucky enough that uh, you know there's this thing called the power of attraction and it's pos- the power of positive energy and just uh, we felt like we were the hammer in the hand because people would just show up who had the knowledge people would just uh, appear out of nowhere and uh, they were attracted uh, by the energy we were we were given out or maybe it was vice versa but we had just random people show up and knew how to do things and taught us. So it was really a, really a kind of magical time. That's awesome. The, uh, at the, at the time, um, I mean, did you grow up eating that way? Did you grow up, you know, buying from farm stands or farmers markets and eating local foods? Well, we always had gardens at our house and uh, my parents were very, uh, cosmopolitan in their diets, which I didn't realize at the time. I mean, you know, mom would cook a leg of lamb about once a month because it would take about a month to get any down here in the South. Or we would have, uh, she'd bake us cheese souffles, or we'd cook whole fish, and dad always had a garden in the backyard. So it was, uh, we didn't, you know, having the processed foods in the house was uh, unknown. I, you know, I had to beg them to buy uh uh, Coca-Cola, and they'd come back from the store with some generic brand that was, you know, horrible. So we, we uh, eating processed foods was just alien in our house. So in that sense, we really lived, uh, really had a great diet, and certainly lots and lots of, of vegetables and a variety of foods. But the processed foods just were unknown in our house. I think uh, you know, you and I spoke a little bit earlier, and I think that you know, one of the things we were touching on. Um, that interests me is the idea that we're living in this amazing time, right? I mean, obviously, you know, there's there's great things probably about every time period, but I think that we're in this incredible moment right now with food where, you know, you and, and a number of other pioneers, you know, started out sort of bringing a lot of these foods that were not new, right? I mean, miso is an ancient food. Lots of these fermentations, tofu, sauerkraut, all these things are ancient, but they sort of fell out of fashion or, or, you know, for whatever reason in America, they were things that were looked down upon as being weird and other and whatnot. And we now are in a time where there's been such a huge resurgence of those things. And I think that, you know, and, and then a huge resurgence beyond that into finding heritage grains and things like that. I mean, I think of, you know, you're in the, the right spot for it, but I mean, I think of what's happening at Anson Mills with Carolina Gold Rice, 
um, and, and other ingredients like that. I wanted to, to pick your brain about other sort of heritage ingredients that you like to work with or that have become available recently. Well, recently we've got people, thanks to uh, the efforts of Anson Mills and others, we have several rice producers down here. Now we're actually getting locally grown brown rice, and we're getting uh, locally grown farro, and people are actually starting to uh, grow barley. So we're getting more whole grains, and our, our field peas down here have always been prolific. It seems like they're everywhere, but you get out of this... Uh, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina area, and you don't see field peas. And now we have people growing uh, uh, these red clay peas, which are dried, and they're just uh, fantastic. So, you know, it's, we've got a variety of uh, uh, products that are now being locally produced. And, uh, of course, sticking with the seasons of the produce, we are having more and more local farmers pop up. We have more and more local uh uh, greenhouse farmers who are growing uh, hydroponically, which used to be uh, synonymous with tasteless and clone-like vegetables, but not anymore. These things are fabulous. We're getting black cherry tomatoes and cucumbers and lettuces now almost year-round from our local greenhouse growers. And we got the monks up in Metcon Abbey growing the shiitakes and oyster mushrooms. So there's a just a resurgence uh, everywhere. I mean, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's happening here, too. You know, we have year-round hydroponic lettuce that's grown on rooftops in Brooklyn and Queens. I mean, there's a, there's a huge company that's, you know, called Gotham Greens that's doing that now. I think they have three rooftops, and they're supplying, you know, it's an incredible amount of food that they're able to grow in that, in that way. As a, well, well, hopefully we're starting to capture the condensation from all these air conditioning units. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I, it's definitely something in, in New York City. You walk down the street in the summer and you can't help but sometimes feel like it's raining from all that condensation. There's a, there's a marvelous uh, movement going on, and it feels very satisfying to me to see it uh, blossoming and to see so many young people get into it. Uh, the, the, the future is wide open in that respect, and it's really interesting when we're seeing uh, large corporations like uh, Panera or Chipotle or even your local grocery store chain feature a local produce section. It's uh, uh, things are, are coming quite a, and you know we're having Mexican markets and uh, and China, uh, Oriental food stores pop up all over the place. It, you know, it used to be we had to make our own tofu back then because we couldn't right. find any. I mean, I have a very to... satisfactory, satisfying process, but it was. Uh, it was, uh, you know, you just couldn't even find tofu. It, it's uh, Now it's uh, on every corner, so it's, it's just wonderful. I mean, I like to think of it as sort of a, a trickle up, right? I mean, I read an article the other day that for their 100th anniversary, Wegmans, which is a big grocery chain in western and northern New York, um, they're going to put a flour mill into, one of, into their flagship store where they're going to mill local wheat and make bread out of it every day. That's wonderful. We had a mill at Pickens Street, now that I remember. We had you know, just so many whole grains there. It was, it was uh, crazy. It was all gravity fed. You know, we didn't have any packaged uh, food. There was no. Uh, it, uh, we were like you know the hippie Earth Mothers to the extreme. Everybody's hairy all over. It was. Uh, <laughs> it was. Uh, it was a very organic time. But uh, 
it's a real pleasure to see these things come back around. And, and it's even greater, I think, when you see the medical profession starting to embrace the fact that, yes, diet is related to health. Yes, what we eat is, does have an effect on our, our uh, bodily health and our mental health. And back then, uh, it was, uh, they were vehemently against it. They were just denial. And now, uh, we're seeing a whole different kind of, uh, attitude towards, uh, food and diet for health, and uh, I think people are finally catching on to the fact that highly processed food is, uh, is dangerous. Yeah. So, so how did you, I mean, obviously it was, a, it was quite, a, quite a time period there, but how did you make the, the leap from, uh, you know, vegetarian uh, co-op uh, to be, you know, the chef that you are today? Well, it was after about six years, and it was turning uh, late 1979, I was uh, getting just a little uh, uh, tired of the veggie scene. It seemed like there's so much uh, uh, no to it. No, you can't eat this. No, you can't eat that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And I just wanted to embrace And at that point, too, I looked up and realized, damn, I guess I'm a cook. You know, six years into it, I guess I missed that college thing. And uh, I started to take notice of these uh, French rebel chefs who were doing the Nouvelle Cuisine in in France. And these guys were putting out food like I'd never seen or dreamed of. And uh, I was lucky enough to work with a a mentor who was uh, involved in French cooking, a fellow named Malcolm Hudson, who was a wild man. And he took us on a trip to France where we traveled in a camper van for the month of January and went to nine three-star restaurants of the like of uh, Paul Bocuse and Freddy Giardet and the Aberlins and uh, uh, so many others. And they were all so generous and kind and, you know, uh, uh, they were just welcoming and they embraced us and, uh, and I realized there was a guild and an artistry to cooking and these guys were incredible businessmen too because they were making uh, tons of money and uh, uh, you know Alain Chappelle it was just fantastic and to see that what these guys could do and how generous they were and how kind and uh, uh, open they were to us it really uh, uh, was an exciting time and for the next uh, gosh at least decade it was Trey Francais all the way <laughs> and uh, we just uh, and they made a big impact and they they still do and the, uh, there's a direct link to what's going on in our cooking scene to chefs like myself and many many others who were inspired by these French rebels and Paul Bocuse put it right you know I asked him uh, what advice he had for a young American cook and he said learn your technique apply it to your region, and don't copy us. Hmm. And I think that's uh, basically what people like Frank Stett and Ben Barker and Louis Osteen and, and uh, so much, Jeremiah Tower and so many others uh, uh, in that era, the 80s and 90s, uh, really did. They embraced that, and, uh, and now American chefs have... Uh, uh, gone beyond that even, and so it's a. But there's a direct link between those French rebel Nouvelle chefs and the scene that's going on in America today. Absolutely, yeah, I I love that quote uh, that Paul Bocuse told you. I think that that's a. There's there's an idea in there. 
that I think is sometimes missing when we as Americans think about, um, you know, think about him or think about this sort of classic French uh, French chefs that, you know, I think that the, the perception is sometimes a lot of these those people, you know, a lot of people from here went to France, learned this sort of, you know, the French brigade style of kitchen, the French style of cooking and came back here and just cooked French food. And I think his commitment and, and sort of pointing out that the real key there is that you have to have the technique and then you can apply it to where you are. That's really right. Just like, just like music or just like sports. I mean, if you're going to play basketball in the Italian league, you better know how to dribble and dunk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so we're uh, we have a few more minutes a few more minutes left here, um, and I uh, I wanted to ask you about where you think the future is going. So I mean, you you are someone who I think has been ahead of the curve for a very long time. You were making miso and tofu in the seventies, and that now has become this sort of hot thing. You went to France at a, you know what was a formative time for you, and was also a formative time in sort of world cuisine. And met these guys who were doing this stuff, and came back, and then have applied it, and been part of you know sort of a wave of chefs doing what I think we now would consider sort of modern, Amer- you know, the way modern American cooking is. I mean, I I hesitate to use the word modern. I feel like that applies to something sort of like slick which is not exactly what it is but the uh you know where do you see food and, and chefs and cooking and restaurants going in the next say 15 20 years well part of it is getting more women into the kitchen and getting more people of color and different cultures into the spotlight and getting them uh, this uh, notoriety that so many of us have enjoyed and that's uh, that, I think that's well on its way. But a, a bigger and larger picture, I think the older I get, the more larger view uh, I take, is to clean up our industrial food chain. I mean, there's nothing wrong with aquaculture. I mean, if we don't if we don't make aquaculture clean and sustainable, we're just going to continue to rape the ocean until it's just uh, empty. We need aquaculture. We need clean, sustainable thoughtful, environmentally sound aquaculture. We need to improve our way that we uh, uh, mass produce uh, animal protein and how we uh, uh, mass produce uh, uh, nutritious foodstuffs. And uh, we got to clean up the way we uh, fertilize and the way we treat the land. And so just because we've been really good at producing mass quantities of food over the this last century, which is a miracle in itself, it doesn't mean that we can't improve upon it. And I look towards the the big corporations and government and individuals as chefs who've always been advocates to lead that charge. I mean, think about the school food system, the school food lunch programs and the breakfast programs. Those have an enormous uh, potential to affect people in in a positive way. So taking the broader look, how can we apply these uh, innovative standards and this uh, sense of diet for health and, uh, and regional goodness and uh, putting love back into your uh, food chain? How can we apply that in a larger picture to our industrial food chain, to agriculture, to government through the school lunch programs, and uh, the, the major corporations like grocery stores and uh, and other entrepreneurial efforts to raise the bar of our food uh, standards in this country and the world. 
because it's it's not just us. It's a, it's one planet. Well, I uh, I one hundred and ten percent agree with you, Frank, and I think that I hope that there are a lot of big agriculture executives and supermarket chain executives and government folks listening to this show because that is a future that I want to live in. Yeah, Con Agra is not the enemy; they are uh, just misguided. Yeah, and we need to. And the uh, you know, what are we going to do? Stop feeding the world? That's crazy. No, we, we just have to do it better, cleaner, more environmentally sound, more thoughtful. And we, I think, chefs can still play a strong role in that advocacy. Well, I really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy Friday to uh, come and record the show with me, Frank. I look forward to meeting you in person someday. Unfortunately, we're out of time for today. But thank you uh, to everyone who is listening today to Feast Your Ears. Uh, a big thank you to Frank Lee for joining me on the phone. Thank you to Kristen Baylor, my producer here at Feast Your Ears. And a big thank you to Jack Inslee for engineering today. Well, thank you, Harry, and I appreciate the job y'all are doing.